this is damn interesting news. Dateline, 1897. Andrea and the aeronauts voyage to the top of the world. For more, we go to Simon Whistler in London. On the 11th of July, 1897, the world breathlessly awaited word from the small Norwegian island of Dangskoya in the Arctic Sea. Three gallant Swedish scientists stationed there were about to embark on an enterprise of history-making proportions, and newspapers around the globe had allotted considerable ink to the anticipated adventure. The undertaking was led by renowned engineer Solomon August Andrea, and he was accompanied by his research companions Neil Strindberg and Knut Frankel. In the shadow of a 67-foot-wide spherical hydrogen balloon, one of the largest to have been built at that time, toasts were drunk, telegrams to the Swedish king were dictated, hands were shook, and notes to loved ones were pressed into palms. Strindberg and Frankel, Andrea cried. Are you ready to get into the car? They were, and they dutifully ducked into the four-and-a-half-foot-tall, six-foot-wide carriage suspended from the balloon. The whole flying apparatus had been christened the Ornen, the Swedish word for eagle. Cut away everywhere, Andrea commanded after climbing into the eagle himself, and the ground crew slashed at the lines binding the balloon to the earth. Hurrahs were offered as the immense primitive airship pulled away from the wood plank hangar and bobbed ponderously into the atmosphere. Their mission was to be the first humans to reach the North Pole, taking aerial photographs and scientific measurements along the way for future explorers. If all went according to plan, they would touch down in Siberia or Alaska after a few weeks' flight, laden with information about the top of the world. Onlookers watched for about an hour as the voluminous sphere shrank into the distance and disappeared into northerly mists. Andrea, Strindberg and Frankel would never arrive on the other side of the planet as planned, but their journey was far from over. Solomon August Andrea was reared in an age where men were measured by the breadth of their daring and the length of their moustaches and he intended to demonstrate that he was an impressive specimen in both respects. As an employee of the Swedish Patent Office, he had established himself as a serious physicist and inventor, but he cemented his reputation for audacity by becoming a self-styled aeronaut, the pilot of manned hydrogen balloons. Balloons were the only mode of manned flight that existed in his day, but the persnickety gas bags were steered by the whims of the winds, which made them ineffective for anyone with a particular destination in mind. The engineer in Andrea sought to remedy this shortcoming, and he used his personal hydrogen balloon to experiment with solutions. He flew as high as five miles over Sweden, field-testing steering systems while huffing supplementary oxygen from a rubber tube. His experiments led him to believe that the upper atmosphere contained a magnificent regular system of winds which only waited for aerial vessels. Finally, by 1895, he'd developed what he felt was a competent apparatus for converting an ordinary hydrogen balloon into a steerable airship, a proper dirigible. It coupled a system of rudder-like drag ropes with a series of wind sails to theoretically afford the balloon some degree of influence over its direction. 
Andrea began to promote his idea for a balloon-based polar mapping expedition by delivering spirited speeches to scientific assemblies. The people adopted the proposal with patriotic fervor. Much glory awaited them if a Swede could be the first to reach the pole. A flurry of press attention worldwide ensued, and Andrea had little trouble finding donors for his projected expenses, including large sums from King Oscar II of Sweden and Alfred Nobel of Nobel Prize fame. Adjusting for inflation, Andrea's balloon would be an approximately $1 million enterprise. Andrea originally intended to launch in 1896. His equipment and men were ready and assembled. However, when they test-inflated their French-made hydrogen bag, it was leakier than the French military intelligence service. The balloon was sent back to the workshop for improvements, and the mission was postponed. During this time, Andrea was harangued by journalists who accused him of outright flimflam and chastised by scientists who suspected that his steering technique would never work. Despite Andrea's optimistic retorts, his meteorologist and co-pilot, Niels Eckholm, took the opportunity to part ways with the project, insisting that physics was more reliable than faith. The following year, the Swedish ship Svenskund brought Andrea and his entourage back to their remote launch island off Norway, this time with their new and improved three-ply varnished silk balloon bag. They started the hydrogen production process by mixing tens of tons of iron filings with fresh water and sulfuric acid. Over an 89-hour period, the one and a half tons of floppy fabric became a semi-rigid, lighter-than-air sphere, and Andrea's team declared it flightworthy. It would still lose some hydrogen in flight, as all balloons did, but the loss rate was deemed acceptable. On the 11th of July, 1897, the moment seemed ripe for departure. The winds were blowing from a favourable southerly direction. The cramped carriage was packed with several weeks' worth of provisions. Neither nook nor cranny went uncrammed. Shall we try or not? Andrea asked his comrades, physics student Niels Strindsberg and meteorologist Knut Frankel. 700 miles of largely uncharted ocean and ice lay between them and the pole. Another 1,200 miles of the same stretched beyond that until safe landfall would be possible. Young Strindsberg replied, I consider that we ought to try to attempt it. Frankel concurred after a moment of initial evasiveness. As mission leader, it was up to Andrea. The decisive moment had surprisingly arrived right on schedule. Newspeople from many nations eagerly awaited word whether they would be dispensing praise or ridicule this day. The weight of expectations was considerable as Andrea contemplated whether he preferred to risk injury to his person or to his character. He addressed his ground crew. Well, now we have been considering whether the start should be made or not. My comrades insist on starting, and as I have no fully valid reasons against it, I shall agree to it, although with some reluctance. Will you, then, send all hands on shore to begin the work of dismantling the balloon house? The workers peeled away the planks of the wooden hangar to reveal the massive hydrogen bubble with its small wickerwork carriage dangling below. Each man in turn made his farewell remarks and handshakes. Strindsberg asked one of the men remaining behind to send his love to his fiancée, then climbed aboard to join his crewmates. I wonder, he wrote in a later letter to her, if a tear did not tremble on my cheek at that moment. 
Knives slashed the anchor lines and the balloon bobbed into the sky, its sails filled with wind and it flew northward over the sea. The initial few minutes proved eventful. Andrea's experimental drag ropes entangled on the shore and detached from the carriage. The balloon then lost altitude and splashed briefly against the water as the balloonists pitched ballast from the basket. But soon they succeeded in properly balancing the balloon weight. They lowered back up drag ropes to replace those lost on shore and the mighty eagle soared. Andrea was vindicated. The naysayers and fusspots were rendered mute. The three explorers would soon be about as far from every other human as it was possible to be, taking aerial photos and meteorological measurements in the constant polar summer sunshine. The expedition had two means of communication. Cork boys designed to carry floating notes back to shore along ocean currents, and a small flock of caged carrier pigeons trained to fly messages back to their roost in Norway. One boy, dropped just a few hours after takeoff, contained the report. Our journey goes well so far. We sail at an altitude of about 250 meters. Weather delightful. Spirits high. A subsequent message in a corky bottle, dropped several hours later, merely updated their location and altitude information. A pigeon-based report, written two days later, contained their position and reported, Good journey eastwards. 10 degrees south, all goes well on board. This is the third message sent by Pigeon. After these initial cheerful updates, long weeks passed with no further word from Andrea, Strindberg, and Frankel. When their balloon failed to appear in the skies of Siberia or Alaska within a few months, columnists worldwide began to hazard all manner of guesses regarding their fate and future. Perhaps they had crashed into the sea, or perhaps they were merely waylaid. Some suggested that they were deep in the Siberian wasteland, inching their way back towards civilization. Most crucially, had they visited the Pole as planned. Whaling vessels began combing coastlines for signs of the expedition. Fellow aeronauts took to their own balloons and squinted through telescopes to search the edges of the Arctic from above. As the weeks waxed into months and those into years, every fragment of rope or cloth found anywhere in the northern latitudes was scrutinized for evidence of attachment to the missing expedition. Their mysterious disappearance in an experimental apparatus stirred the popular imagination, and from time to time sightings of a wandering balloon were reported in the news. Siberian villagers claimed to have spotted a balloon in 1899, and a nearby hut was located containing three corpses, but they did not belong to the Swedish explorers. In 1902, a missionary in northern Canada relayed reports that Andrea and company had set down on the ice for the purposes of hunting when local savage Eskimos fisticuffed, murdered, and mutilated the explorers, but no evidence materialized to support these claims. Between 1900 and 1926, a number of subsequent explorers made their own attempts to reach the elusive North Pole. A few men even claimed success, but none could prove it. It was not until 1926 that Norwegian explorer Ronald Amundsen and his US companion Lincoln Ellsworth finally, irrefutably, flew over the northernmost point of the Earth in their semi-rigid airship, Norge on the 12th of May, 1926. Unsurprisingly, they saw no sign of Andrea or the Eagle. 
It had been 29 years since the expedition had disappeared without a trace to become the stuff of Swedish legend. A few years after Remundsen's successful pole vault on the 6th of August 1930, the Norwegian ship Bratvag was hunting walruses in the Arctic Sea when they seized a rare opportunity to visit the shores of Kvidoya, also known as White Island, a barren, ice-encrusted crumb of land far north of Norway. Ordinarily, the island was inaccessible due to dense fog and dangerous shifting pack ice, but 1930 was an unusually warm Arctic summer. As the crew made landfall and chased walruses, two of the crew were startled to stumble upon a small rowboat half buried in snow near the shore. White Island was not the sort of place one expected to encounter anything man-made. The boat contained an abundance of abandoned supplies, including rifles, ammunition, and cameras. Amidst the equipment, they found a bronze boat hook stamped with Andrea's Polar Expedition, 1896. Here, 33 years after their disappearance, were the legendary explorer's belongings. They were nowhere near the North Pole. In fact, White Island was at the same northern latitude as the island from which the expedition had departed, but 260 miles due east. The ship's captain called off the walrus chase and ordered his men to survey the area. Soon they located more bits of equipment that had been pillaged and scattered by wildlife, a waterlogged observation book, broken sections of snow sledges, binoculars, matches, knives, and navigational instruments. Slightly further inland, someone sighted the skeletal remains of an adult human laying on the bare rock, partially covered in snow. Its skull was missing, and the torso had evidently been gnawed upon by polar bears. A monogram inside the clothing indicated that this was Salomon August Andrea himself. The butt of a rifle jutted from the ice a few paces away. The moment was a strange, solemn one. One of the crew members would later write, It was a glittering, cloudless day, and the great white silence was interrupted only by the occasional thunder-like crack from an island glacier slipping into the sea. The sailors had stumbled upon the remains of one of the greatest mysteries of their time. Here was the Swedish equivalent of Amelia Earhart crossed with the abominable snowman. A few dozen yards north of Andrea, they discovered one other human skeleton, this one having been laid inside a crevice and covered in stones by human hands. A monogram in his clothes and a ring found still on his finger identified him as the young physicist Neil Strindberg. The sailors worked in silence to record the exact locations of various objects before collecting them for transport home. They erected a cairn topped with a tall marker bowl. With the relics and remains aboard ship, the Bratvag departed the following day to stay ahead of the encroaching pack ice. They continued their hunting mission that sent word of their discovery back to Norway via a vessel they encountered at sea. Although Andrea's disappearance was very old news, the discovery was sure to pique interest in Sweden. The Bratvag finished up its hunting mission a few weeks later and headed towards home. When they drew near enough to civilization to turn on their wireless receiver, it crackled with urgent calls for them to return to port at once. Apparently, the captain of the Bradvag had underestimated the gravity of their discovery. 
Given the past few decades of North Pole attempts, including Amundsen's quite recent success, retrospectives about Andrea had been commonplace worldwide. A journalistic encampment was congealing at their small home port of Tromso, and it was becoming a hive of rumours, hoax accusations and platitude-belching dignitaries. Newspeople from many nations eagerly awaited word whether they would be dispensing praise or ridicule this day. When the ship arrived on the 2nd of September 1930, a nephew of Andreas and a brother of Stringsberg's were both among the throngs of journalists and onlookers. Upon verification of the Andrea discovery, the Tromso Telegraph office was awash in outgoing reports. No one quite knew how the Andrea trio had ended up on White Island, but their identities were certain. A Swedish commission took possession of the relics and remains, and an honor guard aboard the Svenskund, the same vessel that had transported Andrea and party to the original balloon departure, escorted the coffins back home amidst flags, parades and aeroplane flyovers. Back in Sweden, investigators began to unravel the remains, peeling away layers of moist clothing that had been colonized by 30 years' worth of algae and moss. Nestled among Andrea's garments, investigators found a blue woolen sweater bundled around some object. Inside was a wad of wet grass, and inside that was a thin book. It was sodden and quite mouldy, but mostly legible with adequate care. It was Andrea's expedition diary. Investigators immediately began efforts to preserve the pages with blotting paper. In the meantime, more news was received from the Polar Sea. A vessel that had set out to follow up on the Bradfag's findings had discovered other artefacts that had emerged from the melting snow on White Island. Among other things, they had located Frankel's remains, Andrea's missing skull, gold and silver coins, and a metal box full of photographic film. The Eastman Kodak film was approximately 32 years past the recommended use date stamped on the tin, but once it arrived in Sweden, investigators decided to try to develop it anyway. The wet, crumbling, silver emulsion had to be dried, and considerable experimentation was necessary to discover a process that could coax usable images from the cartridges. Specialists applied a cocktail of photographic chemicals and images emerged from many of the frames. Even more surprising, they were not all aerial mapping images, but ghostly stills of men standing on the ice. Mission physicist Neil Strindberg had apparently repurposed the cartographic camera to chronicle their sledge journey. Researchers combined these photos with Andrea's diaries and the mission logbooks to reassemble the story of what ensued after the balloon disappeared over the horizon in 1897. Editor's note. The following section contains excerpts from Andrea, Stringberg and Frankel's written logs, as translated by Edward Adam Ray in 1931. This is not the complete record. Some sections are omitted for readability and length. Except, where otherwise noted, the quotations are from S.A. Andrea. 11th of July, 1897. Four carrier pigeons sent off, 5.40 Greenwich time. We are now in over the ice, which is much divided in every direction. Weather magnificent, best of humours. 12th of July, 1897. No land in sight. It is indeed a wonderful journey through the night. I am cold, but will not wake the two sleepers. 
they need rest. For the first two days of flight, they took regular meteorological measurements and photographed the ice and wildlife. On the morning of the 12th of July, the polar winds waned and the balloon hovered stationary for a time. The trio took the opportunity to make coffee using a special apparatus that dangled 20 feet below the car. This kept the cooking fire a safe distance from the flammable hydrogen, thereby averting undesirable oh-the-humanity moments. The three sat and sipped in their squat wicker booth, waiting for the wind. When the wind did come, other troubles began. Andrea began to write of frequent touches and bumpings, referring to the gondola coming into jarring contact with the ice as its altitude slowly oscillated between zero and a few hundred feet. They adjusted their buoyancy by tossing more ballast, but this helped very little. The men were unable to sleep nor eat in peace as they hunkered in close, cold quarters, watching the ice come and go through the small view hole in the floor. This continued for hours on end. Nevertheless, Andrea's notes insisted that their good cheer remained intact. Soon, a freezing drizzle began to drum upon their hydrogen sphere, drenching the balloon and rendering it too heavy for the breeze. The sagging dirigible was immobile in the sky once again, a thin veneer of ice cracking as it froze to the fabric. Andrea wrote, Although we could have thrown out ballast, and although the wind might, perhaps, carry us to Greenland, we determined to be content with standing still. We have been obliged to throw out very much ballast today, and we have not had any sleep, nor been allowed to rest from the repeated bumpings, and we probably could not have stood it much longer. It is not a little strange to be floating here above the polar sea, to be the first to have floated here in a balloon. How soon, I wonder, shall we have successors? Shall we be thought mad, or will our example be followed? I cannot deny but that all three of us are dominated by a feeling of pride. We think we can well face death, having done what we have done. 13th of July, 1897. Strindberg, seasick. The balloon goes extremely beautifully now the sails have been set so, and 110 pounds of ballast have been thrown overboard. The whole is really splendid. An immense polar bear swarmed about 100 feet right below us. He got out of the way of the guidelines. He did not try to climb up to us. By all indications, the eagle's hydrogen was seeping out at a greater than anticipated rate. With compromised gas and ballast supplies, the balloon's buoyancy became extremely sensitive to both the warming effect of the sun and the weight of the water and ice buildup. 14th of July, 1897. Our long guideline has now broken off. Constant fog. No land and no birds, seals or walruses. Another touch. 6.20. The balloon rose to a great height, but we opened both valves and were down again at 6.29. 8.11pm. We jumped out of the balloon. Just 65 hours and 288 miles from their departure, the airborne portion of the journey was already over. The Eagle had landed. Her gallant crew was alone in a sea of hostility. Andrea, Strindberg and Frankel spent the following week preparing for a hazardous journey across the drifting pack ice. None of the three were avid outdoorsmen, but what they lacked in experience they would make up for in obstinance. The men lashed stacks of supplies onto three snow sledges and stretched balloon silk across their small emergency boat frame. 
The trio was aware that they were unlikely to return to civilization before winter, but there were a few survivable hidey holes marked on the maps that could shelter them from the worst of the weather. None, unfortunately, was nearby, and the men were trudging across vast rifts of fickle, drifting, shifting ice. After some deliberation, the explorers decided to head southeast to Cape Flora in Franz Josef Land since survivors of an earlier aborted Arctic expedition had wintered there. Along the way, Strindberg would keep a log of astronomical entries and supplies. Frankel would be responsible for their meteorological records and Andrea himself would maintain a record of their general goings-on. They met their first polar bear there by the fallen balloon, and Andrea shot it to supplement their food supply. Strindberg gathered up the camera equipment, and they began dragging their sledges towards civilization on the 22nd of July. The going was difficult. Each man was responsible for 460 pounds of provisions on a light-duty wooden sledge. The ice pack was a treacherous mishmash of slush, high ridges, narrow cracks of open ocean, and near-freezing melt pools. These obstacles necessitated circuitous routes, backtracking, and occasional crawling on all fours, as in the spring of our youth. The explorers carefully catalogued the character of the ice and described their most successful travel strategies. They also took samples of rock, ice, and algae for later study. Although their primary mission had failed, they intended to do some science all the same. Several passages of Strindberg's letters to his fiancée also survived. Yesterday evening I gave them, for it is I who attend to the housekeeping, a soup which was really not good, for that Rousseau meat powder tastes rather bad. One soon becomes tired of it. But we managed to eat it in any case. Perhaps we must winter here for another year more. We do not know yet. Now we are moving onwards so slowly that perhaps we shall not reach Cape Flora this winter, but, like Nansen, an earlier explorer, we shall be obliged to pass the winter in a cellar in the earth. I do not mind if I suffer hardships, as long as I can come home at last. Strindberg spared his fiancée the worst of the news. The freezing breeze blew incessantly and the sun never set. Snow blindness and severe sunburn were ever-present torments. Occasionally, they had to load everything into their boat to splash across water channels too wide for the sledges and too lengthy to circumvent. Each night, Andrea, Strindberg and Frankel pitched their tent on the ice and clambered into their single, large sleeping sack to pull their body heat, wondering whether any bears would come snooping. The heavy sledges tended to dip or slip into the many deep melt pools, dragging their bearer with them, Andrea wrote. 25th of July, 1897. Strindberg fell in and was in imminent danger of drowning. He was dried and wrung out and dressed in knickerbockers. 26th of July, 1897. Bear beef, immensely good. Meat one hour in seawater, then all well. Sledges broken, iron sheathing as experiment. Mending and examination of weight and considerable reduction. Strange feeling and great indulgence in food on making reduction. In order to slow the overloaded sledge's deterioration, the expedition decided to abandon about one-third of their food and supplies on the ice. They consumed as much of the excess as possible before moving on. 31st of July, 1897. The constant fog prevents us from choosing a good road. Ever since the start, we have been in a very difficult country. 
The Polar District is certainly the birthplace of the principle of the greatest stumbling blocks. Values show that we have driven westward quicker than we have walked eastward. This is not encouraging, but we shall continue our course to the east some time more, as long as there is a bit of sense in doing so. 2nd of August, 1897. The last bear meat was cut into small pieces so that it might at least look like being a lot. Scarcely an hour after breaking camp, we got a new bear. It was an old, worn-out male animal with rotten teeth. I brought it down by a shot in the chest at 125 feet. Tough as leather galoshes. For the benefit of future polar explorers, Andrea catalogued the quality of the various cuts of bear beef. The fillet and ribs were evidently excellent, the heart, brain and kidneys were deemed very palatable, and the tongue was well worth taking. Strindberg experimented with ways to fry, boil, soak and otherwise prepare the bear meat, and practically every preparation was deemed delicious. Fortunately, they declined to dine upon the livers. They had heard the true stories of polar bear livers causing skin coming off the whole body and occasional death due to vitamin A overdose. With little interruption in routine or scenery, the days became profoundly dull and fatiguing, yet Andrea's pen insisted that their moods were cheery. Bear encounters were alarming but seemingly manageable. Whenever the going was slightly less unpleasant, Andrea waxed hyperbolically happy with adjectives such as paradise or magnificent, but these exceptions grew fewer and fewer as the pages progressed. On the 3rd of August, Strindberg's latest lunar observations showed that their slogging had only gained them 33 terrestrial miles. The ice was drifting away from their destination almost as fast as they were walking. Andrea and his companions discussed the situation with the greatest thoroughness and decided to head for the Seven Islands. They estimated six to seven more weeks of such rough travel to make it there the going grew even more perilous. The men's poor diet and long days led to dehydration due to diarrhoea, and they swigged at opium to combat the misery. Food supplies diminished, as illustrated by Andrea's bleak but pragmatic advice to future polar travellers. A little reindeer hair in the food is recommended, for while taking it out, one is prevented from eating too quickly and greedily. Andrea also warned of deep fissures in the ice which were nearly invisible in the unending bright glare. To set foot upon one, oft times went tumbling a silver apple cart into a hidden cavity, sometimes necessitating quick intervention lest man and sledge be lost to the abyss. About a month after the expedition abandoned their balloon, in the midst of the typical monotonous slog, Strindberg cried out, Three bears! A polar bear was silently stalking them with two cubs in tow. It was the first opportunity for food replenishment in a week. Owing to quick rifle work, the hungry men managed to maintain their precarious position atop the local food chain, and the trio carved up their spoils. Andrea referred to the polar bears as wandering butcher's shops, but it was unclear whether he was commenting on the bear's deadliness or deliciousness. On the 18th of August, the trio were mending clothes in their tent when they heard a bear just outside the flap. Frankel happened to have a gun on hand and his shot spared the expedition from an inconvenient mauling. 23rd of August, 1897. Strindberg's sledge badly broken and we could only just manage to mend it. 
We come slowly onwards, and I imagine we shall have to make a late autumn journey to reach Mossel Bay. The ice and the snow on it are becoming as hard as glass, and it is difficult to pull the sledges across it. Today we have tried to go south, 45 degrees west, as Strindberg's lunar observations showed that we were rather more to the westward than we had imagined. Tonight was the first time I thought of all the lovely things at home Strindberg and Frankel, on the contrary, have long spoken about. Growing bored with boiled bear beef, one night the trio decided to try the meats raw with a dash of salt. Andrea compared the results favourably to oysters. Raw brain is also very good, he reported. Next, they began using the bear's drained blood to produce blood pancakes by combining it with oatmeal and butter. Quite excellent. Later, they dabbled with a soup made from local algae, and Andrea praised Strindberg for this fairly important discovery. 30th of August, 1897. Scarcely had we erected the tent before Strindberg cried out, A bear is on top of us! A bear stood about ten paces from him. I was lying inside the tent, sweeping the floor, and so could do nothing, but Frankel, who was on the outside, caught hold of a gun and gave the bear a shot that made him turn badly wounded. To save cartridges, he was allowed to run a bit, but at last he had to be finished off with three more shots. The situation was photographed and the bear was cut up. By the 31st of August 1897, the months of uninterrupted sunshine were drawing to a close. Andrea wrote, The sun touched the horizon at midnight. The landscape is on fire. The snow is a sea of fire. Around this same time, Andrea, Strindberg and Frankel began to encounter wide, river-like strips of open ocean between the floating continents of ice. This allowed them to cover some distance in their balloon silk boat. 3rd of September, 1897. It was with a rather solemn feeling when, at 1.50pm, we began this new way of travelling, gliding slowly over the mirror-like surface of the water between large ice flows. Only the shriek of ivory gulls and the splashing of the seals when they dived and the short orders of the steermen broke the silence. We knew that we were moving onwards more quickly than usual and at every turn of the leads we asked ourselves in silence if we might not possibly journey on this glorious way to the end. Alternating between boat travel and sledge travel became yet another entry in their catalogue of daily hazards. Andrea complained particularly about the edges of the ice flows, which were comprised of a slushy sludge which was difficult to negotiate. 4th of September, 1897. Strindberg's birthday. Festal day. I awakened, giving him letters from his sweetheart and relations. It was a real pleasure to see how glad he was. Strindberg kept his birthday by falling very thoroughly, sledge and all, into the soup. We had to pitch our tent after three hours' march, and then we had a very troublesome and time-wasting business to dry him and his things. Much of the bread and biscuits and all the sugar destroyed or damaged. It was a pretty great misfortune, but its worst side was that it makes life more uncomfortable for us. The accident to Strindberg's sledge did not lessen our festal mood, but we were jolly and friendly as usual. The nightly routine became one of rubbing another's damaged feet and mending their reindeer and polar bear pelt sleeping sack. Ominously, Andrea's previously impeccable penmanship began to tangle, occasionally slipping into the indecipherable. 
9th of September, 1897. Frankel's foot is now so bad that he cannot pull his sledge, but can only help by pushing. Strindberg and I take it in turns to go back and bring up Frankel's sledge. This tries our strength. During the entire journey, Andrea had unfailingly written at least one report per day. But after September the 10th, the next entry was dated the 16th, skipping about a week. 17th of September, 1897. Since I wrote last in my diary, much has changed in truth. We laboured onwards with the sledges in the ordinary way, but found at last that the new fallen snows and character did not allow us to continue quickly enough. Frankel's foot, which still did not allow him to pull, compelled me and Strindberg to go back in turns and pull forward Frankel's sledge too. One of Stringberg's feet was also a little out of order. Our meat was almost at an end, and the crossings between the flows became more and more difficult in consequence of the ice sludge. But, above all, we found that the current and the wind irresistibly carried us down into the jaws between Northeast Land and Franz Joseph's Land, and we had not the least chance to reach Northeast Land. Frankel's foot is now better, but will hardly be well before a couple of weeks. Strindberg's feet are also bad. Our humour is pretty good, although joking and smiling are not of ordinary occurrence. My young comrades hold out better than I had ventured to hope. Possibly we may be able to drive far southwards quickly enough and obtain our nourishment from the sea. Perhaps too it will be so cold that the sea is on the land. He who lives will see. Now it is time to work. The day has been a remarkable one for us by our having seen land today for the first time since the 11th of July. It is undoubtedly New Iceland that we have before our eyes. There is no question of our attempting to go on shore for the entire island seems to be one single block of ice with a glacier border. The scrap of glaciated land lingering on the horizon was White Island. The men considered trying for it, but all of the island edges within sight were towering cliffs of broken away ice. Furthermore, their latest observations indicated that the large ice flow they stood upon was drifting southwards at an appreciable clip. If their luck would hold out for just a few weeks, the vast raft of ice would bring them right to a hospitable cluster of islands east of Spitsbergen, Norway. The 18th of September 1897 was Sweden's Jubilee Day. The men hoisted their flag, toasted the king, sang the national anthem and dined on seal meat. Andrea reported that seals had plenty of edible parts to offer, including brains, intestines, liver, lungs, meat, blubber, kidneys, heart, stomach, contents of stomach and blood. Raw seal fats on bread, he happily informed, tasted of bacon. Even with the drifting ice carrying them towards land and occasional access to sea bacon, substantial shelter was necessary for them to have any hope of survival. Their feet were in tatters and the nights were growing longer and bitterly cold. Soon the incessant stalking polar bears would have their advantage. Strindberg drew up plans for a small but sturdy building of ice bricks stacked with slush mortar, and the three men set to work constructing it. As they built up the walls, the ever-vigilant Strindberg spotted an incoming bear and shouted warning. Strindberg and I were a little eager, I suppose, for each of us missed, while on the contrary, Frankel, with his shot, gave the bear his death wound. Great joy. We had increased our supply of food on April. 29th of September, 1897. 
Yesterday evening, we moved into our hut, which was christened the home. We lay there last night and found it rather nice, but it will become much better, of course. We must have the meat inside to protect ourselves against the bears. The 1st of October was a good day. The evening was as divinely beautiful as one could wish. The work with the hut went on well, and we thought we should have the outside ready by the 2nd. But then something else happened. At 5.30 o'clock local time in the morning of the 2nd, we heard a crash and thunder, and water streamed into the hut, and when we rushed out, we found that our large, beautiful flow had been splintered into a number of little flows, and that one fissure had divided the flow just outside the wall of the hut. The flow that remained to us had a diameter of only 24 meters, 80 feet, and one wall of the hut might be said rather to hang from the roof rather than support it. This was a great alteration in our position and our prospects. The hut and the flow could not give us shelter, yet we were obliged to stay there for the present at least. We were frivolous enough to lie in the hut the following night too. Perhaps it was because the day was rather tiring. Our belongings were scattered among several blocks, and they were driving here and there so that we had to hurry. Two bare bodies, representing provisions for three to four months, were lying on a separate flow, and so on. Luckily, the weather was beautiful, so that we could work in haste. No one has lost courage. With such comrades, one should be able to manage under, I may say, many circumstances. This, unfortunately, is where Andrea, the reliable narrator, fades away. The pages of his diary that followed were rendered largely illegible by both impregnation of moss and a deteriorating writing. The few decipherable fragments of phrases convey that Andrea, Strindberg and Frankel decided to take their chances rowing their tiny boat to White Island out on the horizon. Clearly, they survived the crossing and found some exposed shore on which to land. What ensued in their final days is informed only by speculation and circumstantial evidence the condensation of fact from the vapour of nuance. It has been just over two months since the eagle set down on the ice. The expedition still had weeks' worth of food on hand, but upon landfall they left most of their provisions in the balloon silk boat near the shore, suggesting that the three survivors were too weary, ill, or rushed to carry it farther inland. It is also certain that Strindberg perished first, as his remains were buried by Andrea and Frankel. Had Strindberg succumbed to cold and exhaustion, expiring in the shared sleeping sack during the night, or perhaps one of the local polar bears, themselves in a desperate struggle for survival, had made it past the expedition's rifles and landed a killing blow. Some of the damage to Strindberg's clothing suggests that he, at least, was probably mauled by a polar bear, and the rifle jutting from the snow near Andrea's remains suggests that he may have gone down shooting. Disease might also have contributed to their undoing. The entire expedition may have been stricken with deadly trichinosis from undercooked bear beef. Indeed, later inspection of the butchered bear bones at their camp showed some evidence of trichinosis larvae. It is also possible that the indulgence of local livers starting on Jubilee Day sealed their fate with a vitamin A overdose. This would have handicapped them with nausea, vomiting, dizziness, blurred vision and loss of muscular coordination. Sufficiently severe hypervitaminosis A can also cause hair loss, sheets of peeling skin, and death. Clues from their final encampment suggested that Andrea and Frankel died side by side soon after burying Strindberg, their pockets containing bits of memorabilia from their fallen fellow explorer. Considering their poor diet, 
constant threat of bears and grief over the loss of Strindberg, some have postulated that they perished from deliberate opium overdose. Regardless, after their death, both bodies were thoroughly gnawed upon by local wildlife before being discovered by the Bratvag over three decades later. The mystery of their final few days is unlikely to ever be resolved with certainty. On October the 5th, 1930, as the fallen aeronauts' remains were being returned to Sweden, the coffins were carried straight through the centre of Stockholm, beginning one of the most solemn and grandiose manifestations of national mourning that has ever occurred in Sweden. The procession was attended by tens of thousands, and the route was festooned in Swedish flags. King Gustav V delivered a speech. Andrea, Strindberg and Frankel were heralded as heroes and their coffins were placed on public display in the great church in Stockholm for several days, after which they were cremated. A modest placard memorialising the three men still stands on White Island, though reaching the island is rumoured to be a difficult journey. Some artefacts from the expedition, such as the balloon silk boat, are on display at the Grenner Museum in Sweden. In the years that followed the expedition, researchers experimented with Andrea's drag rope and windsail steering theories and found them to be entirely ineffective. This means that the expedition's balloon was captive to the winds from the moment it left the ground, and all of Andrea's conclusions to the contrary were wishful thinking and confirmation bias. Based on some of Andrea's comments leading up to the launch, he may have been beginning to realise that his dirigible technology was not suited for the intended task. But by then, his future was captive to the earnest expectations of scientists, journalists, his king and his countrymen. He could either try for the pole or be forever condemned as a fraud and a coward by the entire world. So he tried. It is a strange sort of hero who adventures with brazen naivety, but stranger still are the well-intentioned villains who push them into it. This has been your Damn Interesting News. Today's program written by Alan Bellows, with music and audio production by Alan Bellows. Voice talent contributed by Simon Whistler. To see the actual photographs from the expedition, go to damninteresting.com and search for Balloon. As it happens, vitamin A is not the only vitamin that can kill you in large quantities. Vitamins D, E, and K are all absolutely vital in low doses, but deadly in large ones. For more Damn Interesting audio programs, go to www.damninteresting.com forward slash download.